Hey guys, welcome to the Short Term Show special episode series on one of my favorite markets of all time, the Texas Hill Country, Hook'em Horns. So guys, we're gonna do a 10 episode deep dive on investing in the Texas Hill Country. And we got 10 episodes here, I just said that, but make sure you hit that subscribe button because we are gonna do a quarterly update that you don't wanna miss, you guessed it, every quarter. And we do have some supplementary materials for y'all in addition to the content on this podcast. We've got those over at our website, theshorttermshop.com. So if you wanna know anything about purchase prices of properties in these markets, or we've got all of the income data, thanks to our friends over at AirDNA. And we've got all of that for you again at theshorttermshop.com. If you guys wanna buy a short-term rental with a short-term shop agent in the Texas Hill Country, email us at agents at theshorttermshop.com and we will hook you up. Or if you just wanna hang out with us more and talk about short-term rentals, there's a few ways you can do that. Uh, We've got a great Facebook group, same title as my book. It's called Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth. Or if you wanna talk to us live on Zoom, we have a call every Thursday. You can sign up for at strquestions.com and we will catch you guys over there Hook them longhorns. Hey guys, welcome back to the financing episode on the Texas Hill Country. Today we have a great panel to talk about the different financing options, what we see most often in the Hill Country, uh, things that work, things that don't, everything you need to know about getting a loan for a short-term rental in the Texas Hill Country. So Stacy, if you will start off introducing yourself and we'll introduce the rest of them. Sure. I am Stacy Lancaster. I am the Short-Term Shops Texas Hill Country agent, and I also own and uh, self-manage three short-term rentals remotely. All right. Reagan Natho, she might be familiar from other market episodes, but how's it going? Reagan, you want to introduce yourself? Hello, Avery. Um, I am Reagan Natho. I am a short-term shop agent in the um, Smoky Mountains, but I'm a Texas native and love my Texas folks and properties out there. So, but um, I self-manage my property here in the Smokies. Okay. And last, our licensed loan officer, so we don't have to spend the entire uh, conversation saying, well, I'm not a licensed loan officer, but so we have one here. Megan, you want to introduce yourself? Hello, Megan Winterberg here, loan originator at the mortgage shop and an investor turned lender. So my portfolio, I self-manage as well. I have six cabins. Six, man, that's, have you always said, well, I know you haven't always had six, but have you gotten a bunch more recently or did I make that up? Oh yeah, like three. We got three in the last three months, four months. Yes. Been hectic. (laughs) All right. Yeah. I've been busy recording these, so I don't know what's going on with anyone or everyone. Uh, Okay, cool. So let's talk about financing. So there are three main types of finance. Well, let's say four main types of financing. Um, And the main one that most people use, the easiest type to get is going to be conventional financing. Um, so conventional financing, you can walk into any bank, mortgage broker, credit union in the country and be able to get almost all, unless it's like a specialty lender, uh, pretty much anybody's going to be able to do these. And Megan, do you want to tell us a little bit about what goes into qualifying a person for a conventional loan? Yeah. So when we're going to look at that route, really, we're going to be looking at your debt to income ratio, 
your income sources over the last two years and could be W-2, self-employed, but at least having a solid two-year history. And then all of your expenses. We're going to be running your credit. We're going to be looking at any existing mortgages, rent payments, car loans, student loans, and really looking at what you're able to qualify at our maximum is going to be 50% debt to income ratio. And that's adding in that new mortgage payment for the subject property. And that would be 50% up to a loan amount of 726,200 for this year, 2023. And then above that, it would be a 45% debt to income ratio. So that's when that we're asking for all your tax returns, incomes and whatnot. And that's going to be the most common, especially when you're first starting out as well. It's usually the easiest to qualify for. Okay. Cool. So you're qualifying them based on their credit score and their debt to income ratio, which is basically all of their debt versus their income expressed as a ratio. Um, So what are the different types of conventional financing that are available to people? So most common would be a second home loan so that you would be looking at as little as 10% down. There's a few caveats with this specific loan. Basically it's having the intent to use it as a vacation home. So that's why you're looking to buy it. You intend to vacation in that market. And then when you're not renting it out, then yes, you can also list it as a short-term rental while you're not there. So you do need to have that intent to go there at least two weeks a year. You do need to self-manage it. And then it must be at least 45 miles minimum from your primary. You couldn't get a second home within your hometown. Let's say you don't have plans of going there and you don't want to vacation in that area. Well, then a conventional investment loan is a pretty solid option. So you can do as little as 15% down up to a purchase price of roughly 806,000. Above that would be 20% down. And this is an investment property. So it's still going to be pretty good terms, very similar to second home, just the down payment slightly more. And you don't have those requirements of having to go there, have to self-manage it. So it's a great option. And you can have up to 10 of these conventional loans in your name at one time. Okay. So you can have 10 conventional loans in your name at once. And I want to highlight too, that if you are married, And each, both you and your spouse can qualify individually. If you alternate whose name is on each loan and don't put both of your names on every loan, then you can have 10 loans each rather than 10 loans jointly. So if you put both of your names on every single loan, you can only have 10. But if you can each qualify for your own and alternate, you can have 20. So if you're able to do that, I would recommend doing that. Um, Also with conventional loans, you can't get them in an LLC. You have to put them in your personal name. So keep that in mind. And um, let's see. So I want a couple things that I really want to highlight. And one is that the 15% down investment loan. So, so many people are shocked when they hear you can put 15% down on a single family investment loan. A lot of people think the minimum is 25 or even 20, but 15% down is a really, really amazing option if you're looking for a low percentage down. In terms of the second home loans, I want you guys to be careful with that and make sure that you are staying inside the lines and staying out of gray areas when it comes to getting second home loans. If you're, if you are buying a place that you plan to go visit, great. Second home loan is, is an awesome option and you can rent it out when you're not using it. But if you're not really planning on using it and you really just want to get down that 10%, like basically here's the rule that I use is 
if you're running spreadsheets on a property, you should probably go ahead and get that 15% down and not do the 10, just because it's best to stay inside the rules, color inside the lines, stay out of gray areas. Because uh, I see a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm going to get 27 different second home loans in a bunch of different markets. But then it becomes very clear to the powers that be that if you're getting that many, you're not planning to stay two weeks in all of those. So uh, just don't don't try to get cute with the mortgage fraud rules. It's not, not a good look. It's not going to be a good look. I've never seen anybody actually get busted for that, but I don't want any listeners of ours to be the first ones to do it. So make sure you're following the rules on those second home loans. Uh, anything else on conventional that we, oh, let's talk about the difference between jumbo and conforming. So what's conforming? So basically it'd be looking at what the Fannie and Freddie guidelines say is the maximum conforming loan limit. So for 2023, it's $726,200. That puts a purchase price 10% down of $806,000 and some change, 15% down $854,000, and then 20% would be around $900,000. So that loan amount or under, you're going to be having those conventional terms. So right now, those are going to be the best interest rate, lowest points. And then the moment you switch to jumbo, so a loan amount above the 726200 rates and terms could be different. So, I mean, you still have 30-year fixed options. You still have ARM options. There's no prepayment penalties with any of these conventional loans. But rates right now are actually higher for Jumbo and the points are higher too. So you really need to factor those in with what you're going after and really communicate that with your loan officer. And the reason I say that is if you're not budgeting for the points or have the appropriate down payment, then once you're under contract, you may not be ready with all that additional capital. I mean, one of my strategies, I actually switched to the 15% down and I squeezing out a little bit more of a lower purchase price just to make sure I can have that conventional term. And one thing Avery said about the loans of doing it under your own name, I highly recommend that. My husband and I do that as well. You can put your spouse on title. So your spouse will still get credit for the income when it's on their tax returns. It's a great strategy. Awesome. Thank you for that. All right. So now let's talk about DSCR and or portfolio loans. So DSCRs are a type of portfolio loan. I would say these are the second most common used, most commonly used loans to buy short-term rentals. So can you tell us what a DSCR loan is? And then I'll ask you some questions around it. Yeah. So what you're looking at there, it's called a debt service coverage ratio loan. So how it works is there, we are looking at the income the property should generate against the debt service. And it needs to be on a, most commonly, it's going to be a one-to-one ratio. So if your mortgage payment is $4,000 a month, principal, interest, taxes, insurance, and HOA, the full thing, the gross monthly income needs to be at least $4,000 a month to hit the one-to-one ratio. So that's something you would be looking at to be approved, as well as your credit score and then your assets. For DSCR, they do have higher reserve requirements typically around six months reserves, 25% down. Rates are going to be roughly about 1% higher than conventional. And you can close in an LLC or your personal name. Okay. 
So these loans don't really go or don't go at all off of your debt to income ratio. They are only based on your credit score they check, but really just what the property is going to make and, and measuring whether that will cover the debt service or your mortgage every month. Um, you can get those directly in your LLC, right? Yes. And no limit on finance properties. Correct. Yep. You're not limited to that 10. Okay. Awesome. And so this would be a really good option for people who might be like out of their DTI. Maybe they can't buy another property until next year conventionally because they need to show the income on their tax returns, but they have a down payment where they could buy another one now. So they don't want to wait. They want to go ahead and buy or someone who is maybe moving from W-2 over to 1099 work, and they don't have that two years of income to show yet to get a conventional loan, um, or just you know b- people who are out of their 10 conventional loans. I mean, the goal of being a real estate investor is to you know buy enough real estate that you don't you're out of conventionals, you can't use them anymore. So um, I think that these are a really great option. What are some downsides of of DSCRs? Because I think when the DSCRs came on the scene for short terms about a year and a half, two years ago, everybody lost their minds trying to get these things. And then they're like, oh, wait a minute. What are the, oh, wait a minute moments of DSCR loans? A couple of the biggest ones are for one, just the interest rate. You're not going to be getting the same conventional terms. So uh, in general, they're roughly going to be 1% higher. So if you know that your strategy is going to be looking at debt service coverage ratio loans, you need to run your numbers at those interest rates or ask your loan officer to get some estimated terms and prepayment penalties. So most commonly, DSCR loans are going to have a five-year prepayment penalty. The most common one is going to be a step-down or 54321. All that means is if you chose to refinance that loan in year one, you would pay five years of interest as your prepayment penalty. If you refinanced it in year five, you'd pay one year of interest as your prepayment penalty. And then year six through 30, no more prepayment penalty. You can always potentially buy that down. If you have your strategy for the next three years, I'll tell you myself, I have three DSCR loans in my portfolio and one of them has a three-year prepayment penalty because I have a strategy when I plan to refinance out of that loan. So it's a great loan but you need to be aware of those terms. And then just sometimes higher reserve and down payment. You may not realize it needs that 25% plus the six months reserve. So you have to plan accordingly. When you're starting out conventional, sometimes you only need one to two months reserves. Okay, great to know. Yeah, so I saw a lot of people over the past two years be like, oh my God, DSCR is the best thing to ever happen. And then they're like, wait, but that interest rate is not good. And in my brain, I'm like, but yeah, they're giving you the loan based on the idea that you're gonna manage it well enough to pay them back. So they're going to make their money somewhere. And that would be the interest rate. It's a riskier loan for them. So the interest rate is higher. Uh, And then that prepayment penalty is something you have to think about for sure. I will Uh tell you, I have many clients who are like, Hey, tell me about this DSCR loan. And they're on property one or two. So we'll absolutely go through all the loan products, but if you're able to get approved conventionally, I highly recommend it. And I will specifically suggest that route. It's still up to you, but you really need to communicate what your goals are and going forward. Cause if you know, we can factor in conventional, you can really strategize and maximize a few things. So definitely recommend it. Okay. 
And one thing that I don't think, Stacey, we're, you can tell me if I'm wrong here. We don't really run into many condo buildings in the Hill Country, do we? Right. Yeah. We don't have a ton of condos, uh, except in some of the lake markets, but no, they're not very common here. Okay. So we're probably not going to have to worry too much about non-warrantable condo loans, but for the sake of just talking about them in case someone does buy one of those condos in some of the lake areas, um, Typically, non-warrantable condos are not financeable conventionally, so you would have to go DSCR or commercial. And non-warrantable, all that means, I mean, it means several things, but typically the reason in these types of markets that condos are non-warrantable is because they are owned by, a higher percentage of the units are owned by investors than primary home owners. So it just means you can't get conventional financing on them, which isn't that scary. You just have to find a lender who can do non-warrantable condo lending, which is typically a portfolio or commercial loan. And DSCR, these DSCR products, will they do non-warrantable condos? They will. Yeah. So something to consider too, if you are approved conventionally and you think you're going after that condo with 10% down, you need to communicate your property type to your loan officer because 99% of the times they are going to be non-warrantable, which goes to the 25% down. So even though your debt to income might allow it, the property type just disqualifies it for conventional loans. And I, Avery hit the nail on the head. There's multiple reasons they are non-warrantable, but one of the easiest ones is just really, if more than 50% of the owners are investors, that's going to make it non-warrantable. And so we look at every condo individually to determine it, but most likely if you're buying in an investor market, you should plan for non-warrantable. All right. So the last type of bank financing, I'll call it, we still got another type of financing. The last type of bank or broker financing that is available is what is a commercial loan. So typically commercial loans are done on apartment buildings, office buildings, uh, you know, commercial properties, but you can get commercial lending on single family rental properties, but it can be a little bit difficult. So if we're going in order of easiest loans to get, it goes conventional, then DSCR portfolio, and then commercial. And the reason for that is because most commercial loans are not going to come from big national brokers that are easy to find. They're going to come from local banks and credit unions. And those local banks and credit unions have a more rigorous process for approving you, not necessarily in terms of what your DTI or anything are. They don't really look at that so much, uh, but they want to see that you're going to build a relationship with them. So if you're just planning to buy one property and move on, they're probably not going to give you the loan. Uh, they're going to want you to put some of your money in their bank. They're going to want to see your personal financial statement. So, which is not, I just said, they're not going to look at your DTI and some other things, but they are going to look at your personal financial statement to see how you run your businesses, if they're profitable, you know, what your bankability is. And they're going to want to know, see a business plan. So they're not just going to give you money because you want to to buy a house and rent it, they want to know that you're going to build a business and that they will be a part of that. They're looking for relationships. So uh, they're going to either need to be local to you or local to the property. So if you're buying a property in the Hill Country and you live in Cleveland, Ohio, like the Bank of Omaha, Nebraska is probably not going to give you the financing on that property. They want it to be local in some form or fashion. And it's kind of like a movie. They take your personal financial statement, they take your business plan, they look at the property you want to buy, and they take it to what's called committee. 
And they say, here you go, guys, should we give this person a loan? And a bunch of people around a table say yes or no. So in a lot of ways, it's easier because you're, it's not based on your income or your debts. But in a lot of ways, it's harder because it's hard to find these banks. A lot of commercial lenders are not down with short-term rentals yet, even though they will do hotels. And honestly, I think the entire lending landscape will change when commercial lenders start looking at these as hotels instead of residential properties. Uh, but anyway, they can be a little bit more difficult to get, but eventually you do run, get to the point in your investing career where you're out of conventionals, you've got to go commercial or DSCR for everything. So if you have a local lender, either to you or the market that you want to buy in that does, that will do commercial financing for short-term rentals, that's a really good thing to have in your back pocket. Um, and then you can have multiple loans with one bank. Typically they keep their their loans in-house and they don't sell them. So it's just one easy payment processing uh, point of entry. Uh, anything else, anything I've missed on commercial, Megan? I would just make a point that if it's your first or second loan, they're not going to give you the time of day. They really want to see you invested the invested in the market. So let's say if you already have a portfolio of three to five properties in that market, and they know you're looking to expand there and really grow that relationship. And profit and loss can be scary at first. So I highly recommend if you've never done it before, you can even download a easy template on the internet, do it on a monthly or quarterly basis. So you even know what your reserves and assets are because they're going to ask for that every single time. And they're not usually 30-year fixed loans. So that's a huge one because I've been talking for some commercial as well. And maybe they're a three-year term with an adjustable or a five-year term with a balloon payment. So it might be amortized over 30 years, but now in three years, you're either refinancing that loan or doing a balloon payment. So just questions you really need to ask because you need to be prepared for that. Right. And typically, depending on where we are in the market cycle, uh, sometimes the interest rate will be a little higher than conventional. And sometimes it will be a little lower depending on whether the market's trending up or down. So keep that in mind too. Uh, and again, I'm, here's my thing. Max out your conventional loans first. They're always going to be the easiest to get, the easiest to find. Yes, it's a pain in the ass and it feels like they're asking you for the same document 27 times over the course of three weeks. Just do it. It's it's worth maxing out your conventionals before moving on to these other types of loans. Okay, so last, last type of financing and um, Stacy and Reagan, I don't know if you guys have seen this much with your clients yet. Maybe you have uh, creative financing. So there's several types. There's owner financing. There's subject to. There's a few different things. Have you guys had anybody uh, want to try and, and negotiate a deal like this yet? Yeah, I actually had um, one buyer who got two deals like that. Um, and I told him, I was like, you need to buy a lottery ticket because those are not common in the marketplace. Uh, one was owner financing, just straight owner financing. Um, the seller owned the property outright and was willing to um, carry the note. I think they did a um, five-year balloon um, amortized over 30 years. Then the other deal that they did, it was actually the seller. Uh, so it was financed through a local bank um, and the seller was willing to carry a second um, on it to, you know, cover the difference in the mortgage and the bank approved them transferring the mortgage over to them. So that was a really unusual situation and it just kind of all the stars aligned and it worked out great. Um, but 
those are, I, I call those unicorn deals. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I had some clients kind of poke around at some owner financing things, but kind of here in the Smokies haven't been super successful finding any sellers that were willing to work with that. Yeah. And it can be, it can be difficult to find. So I'm not going to say it doesn't exist, but I do want to set the expectation that it is very difficult to find. Um, so owner financing, really the only time that that is even a viable option is if the seller owns the property outright with no mortgage. They're, most lenders are going to have a due on sale clause where you have to pay the mortgage off when you transfer ownership. So in most cases, it's not going to, owner financing is not going to be an option if they don't own it outright. Now there can be those little situations like what Stacy just mentioned, but again, few and far between. Um, and then the next type, the main one that's like all over the place now is subject to financing. So what that is, is, and this is something that is much more prevalent in a market like we're in right now, where a lot of the sellers had a much lower interest rate on the loans they were able to get than on the loans we're able to get today. So basically what a subject to deal is, is when I, as the buyer, am taking over the payments on their, on the seller's lower interest rate loan and making a big down payment to them. So I'm not having to take on this new loan with this really high interest rate. I'm able to keep their loan with the lower interest rate. Typically, they're going to want a pretty large down payment out of that. So probably I've, the ones that I've seen that are willing to even entertain it, they want all of the equity in a down payment. So if they paid 500 two years ago and it's worth 800 now and you want to keep their 2% loan, you're having to put down 300. Um, you can... Uh, typically, both of these types of financing work best in like C-class residential. So if you're trying to buy, you know, a million dollar home in Wimberley on the water or in any of the lakes in this area or Fredericksburg, these are typically not going to be deals where that that's going to work really, but it can, I'm not saying it can't, but it's typically this type of stuff works on a hundred thousand dollar house where the person's been living in it for 20 years and they're distressed and need a way out. Uh, somebody who owns a million dollar house in wine country in Fredericksburg or $2 million or whatever it is probably has that as a second home or an investment loan or an investment and just wants to take their money and get out. They're not in any kind of distress. They don't need to do these types of things. And I mean, I would too, honestly, I don't want to be wrapped up with any of y'all who are buying my house for the rest of my life. Um, cause you're, that's the other kind of downside to it too, is you're never going to be, they're not going to be fully rid of you there because the, their name is still technically on the loan. So there are going to be times that you need something from them for taxes or something got sent to them instead of you. So you're still going to have to like keep a relationship with that seller, which to me is the most unattractive part as a seller of the entire thing. So all of that's doable. That's which is why I wanted to mention it because it can work just like it's worked with Stacy's client. I've seen it work here and there, but it's just not something that happens very often. Um, anybody have anything they want to add to that? I'm just kind of curious, like from Megan's perspective on the sub, you know, subject to from like a lender's perspective, what they think of that. Um, it's not easy to do. So even if you're actually able to find a seller who's willing to do it, which I would say don't bank on that in many of these investment markets, because that would be, I think Stacey's at best a unicorn. I mean, there's plenty of other buyers that are still going in and going after those deals that don't need to do a subject to. So it's not going to be very easy. It's very hard hard to lend on this as well. Yeah. So uh, it can work really well if you're planning on holding it for a while, um, waiting, maybe waiting for 
financing the financing world to get a little more favorable for for buyers, maybe for the interest rates to go down, things like that. But definitely worth mentioning. Uh, another thing worth mentioning, but I don't think worth doing if you can do any of the other options is hard money. I hear a lot of people who, you know, everybody when they start investing, they go listen to all the podcasts and they like start at the beginning of bigger pockets and the best real estate advice ever show and all, all these things. And they hear people talking about hard money. And typically hard money, you really only ever use that if you're doing a flip or a burr. So if you need to come in with a strong same as cash offer and you're going to fix the property up over the next six months and then finance out of that, uh, that's really the only time you would ever use hard money. But I see people because they listen to all these podcasts and they'll come to us and say, okay, cool. Here's this house. It's 500,000. I want to offer on it. Let me go grab a hard money loan real quick. I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What do you need hard money for? This house is like, it's ready to go. You don't need hard money. No. Oh, well, that's, you know, such and such podcast said I needed. No, you don't. You need conventional financing. So hard money typically is like a, I mean, last time I looked was at at one option was like a 12 or 13% interest rate and can be more. So if that's a, you know, if you're buying a $500,000 property, I mean, what is that? $50,000, uh, minimum that's 10%. So you're paying $50,000 in interest and typically they're short terms like 1 to 3 years. So it can be really difficult if you were to buy a property that way if there's no real like forced appreciation or option for you if for whatever reason you were avoiding conventional financing to begin with if you can't remedy that within that year like you might be making less money on the property than what you have to pay an interest depending on at what point of the year you're buying in. And you, did you buy it not in the high season? Did, are you going into low season? All this stuff. So you can really get yourself in a bad situation using hard money when you don't need to. So I definitely wanted to mention that because I hear it mentioned often enough that I wanted to clarify that you really don't need to do that unless you are flipping or burring a property. I want to tack onto that because you made me think of something I didn't mention earlier on conventional financing. So let's say you don't have the down payment. You can't go take a hard money loan to just use as your down payment. So any funds that you are using for your down payment, closing cost reserves need to be seasoned for at least 60 days, or they need to be sourced. So we need to know, are they coming from your friend, Megan down the street or no, those are your savings that you're pulling out of stocks or your 401k or potentially another retirement or investment account. If you don't have the assets available, we could always look into a HELOC or he loan from one of your properties, but you couldn't just go to a hard money lender and say, I'm just going to borrow a hundred grand from them for my down payment. It doesn't work like that. Really good advice. Because I I see people try to do that too, where they try to finance their down payment to where now they've got 100% financing. And that sounds really great. And that sounds great on podcasts when people talk about it until you're trying to implement it and you realize you owe all this money all over the place and you're not able to even use the income from your property um, to buy more properties. So just guys, don't over leverage yourself, I think is what we're getting at with the key takeaway here. Um, anyone else have anything to add? Anything that we have missed? Any examples or stories? I would just say, I think I reminded myself of one, especially if you're getting conventional financing and you're only pre-approved for, you know, maybe one $500,000. I just keep using 500 as an arbitrary number. Maybe you're approved for $1 million property. 
Uh, I don't suggest going and making offers on 10 properties at one time and getting under contract on 10 and just going through the process and seeing which one will give you the most money off. Uh, Eventually, your number will be up. There's something called negotiating in good faith and that you can, uh, a judge could rule against you for not operating in good faith. So making offers on 10 properties, knowing you can only get one would fall under that category. So uh, best case scenario, you lose several, several earnest money deposits and worst case scenario, you get sued by several people. I've never seen that happen, but again, I don't want to, well, I don't want anybody listening here to be the first one that happens to you. So, um, and then also make sure that you're disclosing everything to your lender that could even remotely affect the deal. Anything financial, anything job related, please make sure you're disclosing. We talked about this on the last episode, uh, but please make sure you're disclosing that upfront as close to the front of the deal as you can. So there's no surprises at the end because sellers are much less willing to extend and work with you on things when they're three days away from closing and you've tied up their property for four weeks than at the very beginning. And we're going to find it anyways. So yeah, tell us your whole life story, whatever you need to. (laughs) If you're going to try to open a credit card or buy a car before closing, we will know. And that could absolutely disqualify you potentially. And just one thing I wanted to make sure. So if you're looking in multiple states, like many short-term shoppers are, you need to make sure you let your loan officer know when you switch states or what specific states you're looking in. The reason why is, well, some states have higher taxes than other states. Some states have higher insurance. There are certain strategies, for example, conventional investment loans. We can add in proposed rental income to help offset your debt to income. If you're looking in Texas, I know that number is going to come in very conservatively versus if you're looking in Broken Bow, for an example. So just make sure you really communicate so we know what strategy to go after and what's going to work best in each market. And speaking of multiple, another thing that I want to make sure you guys don't do is uh, trying to get multiple second home loans in the same market with different lenders. So I've seen people start the loan process with two or three different lenders at one time and all 10% downs, like, you know, you're only supposed to have one and doing it all at once and have them all closing within like a day of each other, hoping that each lender would not necessarily find that the other lender was doing a deal also. So, you know, when lenders check at the end, they can see, oh, it looks like you have an open loan with such and such bank and the buyer would say, well, no, 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 I was shopping rates. So that was nothing. Trying to close them all the same day so they don't get busted by the lenders. Guys, that's like major, major mortgage fraud there. And sorry, my dog just shook really jingly. Um, And then also make sure that you are, again, with the mortgage fraud thing, I I saw recently where uh, a buyer was telling his agent that it's an investment property, told the lender, well, it's a primary home, but I'm gonna I'm gonna rent it eventually, and the lender busted him uh, halfway through the deal because he signed something saying that he would honor the future bookings. And guys, if you try to commit mortgage fraud like that with a primary home, that will get not only you but your agent and also your loan officer in big big trouble, like potential license loss. So if you are willing to commit fraud like that, please do not lie to us and drag us all down with you. (laughs) We would appreciate you not doing that. Not that anyone that 
not that anyone we know would do it, but it happens out there in the world. So uh, just make sure you're following all the rules and you're going to be in good shape. Uh, anything else regarding financing that you guys feel like we need to make sure the listeners hear or any, since it's mostly single family homes in this market, there's not a lot of like crazy nuanced stuff. But what do you think, Stacey? Anything? No, I don't think so. I think we covered um, everything. I don't know, Megan, if you have any insight on like the appraisals as far as, you know, when you are using that income um, from a property to help qualify for the loan. Uh, Appraisers are not as well versed in this market and with doing that. So I don't know if you have any insight on that you wanted to share? Yeah, I'll tack on a little bit more on that. So what Stacey's referring to, it's a portion of the appraisal, it's a 1007 appraisal. So we're pulling the incomes from the market rents, if you will. It's primarily, it's used, it was created for long-term rents. And many appraisers aren't versed with short-term rentals. So even if it's a short-term rental heavy market, they could still be pulling in long-term rental rents. So it's very important that you are working with a loan officer who knows this, knows the market. For example, Stacy and I just closed a deal and I provided, oh gosh, I think like a nice little PDF for that appraiser of all the short-term rental comps in that market to help support the numbers that we knew we needed, but were also true. If we go DSCR, we're looking at income very differently. Yes, we'll have the appraisal, but we're going to be looking at AirDNA and other internal factors where it's really going to be pulling in that short-term rental. So if it's conventional investment though, Yeah, we really need to factor that in. So it will be difficult in this market to get a lot of data for short-term rental to pull that income because there's because there's it's not just so much like in the Smokies, for example. It's really unfortunately from the appraisers because it's same with Florida, where we know there's some short-term rental heavy markets, but when we're looking at conventional investment loans, 15 or 20% down. The coolest factor of these loans are that you can add in proposed rental income to help offset your DTI during the transaction as long as you have a primary housing expense. So it can usually help you get one additional property and squeeze that out of your DTI that year. Appraisers, it's very market specific. So I know if in Tennessee, that conventional investment appraisal might come in 6000 on a $700,000 property, where in Texas, it could be coming in at 3000 because they're pulling in those long-term rental rents. So there's different data we can be provided. But if I know you're looking in Tennessee and Texas, I'm going to have very different taxes listed in both of these states, very different income for the loan option. So just communicate. If you change strategies, I had a client yesterday said, nope, I'm switching to Texas. I'm like, like, okay, let me rerun your numbers and see if anything changes on what you're pre-approved for. And it's fine to do that. Awesome. Anything else before we go? I think we've pretty much covered everything. All right. Well, guys, uh, if you have any further questions, if you're ready to buy something in the Texas Hill Country, you can email us at agents at the shop.com. Or if you just have more questions, you can join our Facebook group. It's called Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth, same as my book. Or you can also join our live Zoom office hours every Thursday. You can sign up to join those at strquestions.com. Thanks, everyone.